Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast number four. We are continuing our series, Who Do You Believe? through the Gospel of John. Today we are going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well in Jesus' encounter with her from John chapter four, where Pastor Roy will be talking about living water for a thirsty soul. Here's Pastor Roy Burkett from Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. If you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, uh, we are continuing our series on who do you believe? Uh, we talked about this word believe and John is used 98 times. And so that's really what John is trying to get his audience to do is to be convinced of the person, the life, the message, the power of Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 4, we want to read down through this account so you can kind of see what happens. And then we're going to just uh, work through it and make some comments. It picks up in verse 4 of John chapter 4. It says, and it's talking about Jesus. Now he had gone through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit, in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 
Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was everything this woman was not. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But the point is, Jesus has a way of communicating with whoever his audience is. But his message did not change. His method may have changed in how he communicated it, but his message never changed. Because the truth of the matter is, there are people in our world who are thirsty. We are born spiritually thirsty. And God has the water of life to give us, and we have to be a channel to give that living water to others. And so we want to look at this this morning. If this is going to work, maybe it's not. I don't see it advancing. Well, (laughs) hit one. That's not working either. (laughs) So you might have to advance it for me until we get that figured out. All right. Mankind has a spiritual thirst that can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. This is the crux of the whole matter. We cannot satisfy our thirst any other way. Ultimate satisfaction in life comes from an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, so we want to look at the setting of this story. And he just, there he is. Okay. The setting of the story is it took place in Samaria. And go ahead and advance the slide to the next one. Because I want to show you, and I don't know if you can see that very well from the back. Um... Galilee is up here in the north, just to give you an idea. Judea is down here in the south. Samaria is in the middle. And right here is Sychar, right in here, the little town that he's talking about. Right here is Mount Gerizim, which is also referred to in the text. Uh, Jerusalem is here. And so if you were to travel up to Sychar from Jerusalem, it's about a 30-mile journey. So it's a good little jaunt. Now, because they didn't get along, oftentimes the uh, Jews, if they were coming from Galilee or Judea, they would bypass Samaria because they didn't get along. And so, but it was kind of the central part there of uh, the country. Go to the next slide, and there's kind of a picture. This is a picture of a typical uh, scene in Sychar. It was a small village, not much is known about it. Uh, But that gives you a little bit of idea. The hill in the background in this slide is Mount Gerizim, 
where the lady talks about, you know, we say we should uh, worship in Mount Gerizim. You say Jerusalem. That is Mount Gerizim. Just to give you some uh, geography there of what that is about. Sychar, um, go on to the next slide and just go to the setting again. Um, And it gives uh, Samaria about 30 miles to the north. Uh, Sychar means drunken. I don't, it doesn't really tell us a lot about the city, but maybe that word there talks a little bit about it. The Samaritans uh, were mongrel or half-Jews for two reasons. They were, they were um, half-Jews, uh, a mixed breed by birth, and they were a mixed breed by religion. What happened was the king of Assyria took ten tribes of Israel... And when he took them, he ended up dispersing them throughout uh, the empire. And he took a bunch of other people and dispersed them through the empire to repopulate Samaria. And when he did, the Jewish race was no longer pure. They intermarried with other people, and and hence they called them half-breeds. So this caused a lot of animosity and tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Also, they were uh, mixed breed by religion because when they mixed the people together, the people also brought with them their gods. And it wasn't Jehovah God, it was other gods. But eventually, Jehovah God won out. uh, But because of that, there was a syncretistic uh, view of religion and mixed religion. And so they were mixed breed by birth and mixed by religion. And so that's important as we look at this uh, text because it brought a lot of conflict between them. The Samaritans were guilty of defiling the temple at Jerusalem with bones of the dead. And Galileans would not even travel through Samaria, which we saw Galilee was up north and Samaria was in the middle. They would not travel through there because they would be verbally abused, if not physically abused, if not killed. That's the kind of animosity there was. If you would go back into the 50s about the, uh, the blacks and the whites in the south, that kind of animosity was the kind of animosity that was experienced between the Jews and the Samaritans. So we need to understand that because Jesus, being a Jew, talking to this woman of Samaria was against everything in the culture. Absolutely against everything in the culture. And yet he was willing to do that. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Think about that. The parable of the Good Samaritan. For a Jew to hear that a Samaritan was good would have rankled them. I mean, they wouldn't have liked to hear that at all, that there's any Samaritan that would be good at all. And when Jesus healed the ten lepers, there was only one person who came back to give Jesus thanks. And who was it? A Samaritan. Interesting that Jesus chose that story. Why? To show that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's nobody he doesn't love. And we should be reaching out in love, being a channel through which God can flow to others. God has brought to us, Corinne, Hispanic, and people of other race and color, and we should be reaching out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus did that, and he gives us a great example of that. Let's go on to the situation. second part is the situation. The context of the story, it happened in the sixth hour, which was 12 noon. Not the typical time you go to get water. It was the hottest part of the day. In the Mediterranean world, they avoided the heat. They would either go early in the morning or early in the evening. They would not go at noon. Why did this woman 
travel to the well, which was probably a mile trip for her. Why did she travel to the well to get water at noon because of her lifestyle? Said she had five husbands. And the one she was living with now was not her husband. She was an immoral woman, a sinful woman. And therefore, she was an outcast in society. And therefore, she went there to be alone. Only to find Jesus there. What an opportunity for Jesus to meet this woman and to talk to her. This woman was all that Nicodemus was not. Nicodemus was a man. This woman, female, was a woman. He was educated. She was ignorant. He was religious. She was irreligious. He was moral. She was immoral. Um, he was... He was serious and dignified. She was probably flippant and boisterous. It's hard to imagine a greater contrast between the two of these. And yet Jesus picks up this conversation with her. Now, what kind of, what kind of background would this woman have had with what she was going through? She would have had pain beyond description. I mean, I can't imagine having broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship. You kind of hold people at arm's length. You don't let them get close to you. You don't want to get into a question and answer thing. You don't want to get into any kind of conversation with them. And you have heard me say before, I have seen people who, when they come into church, they'll come in at the last minute and they leave as soon as the the amen is there because they don't want to interact with people. And there's a reason why. Oftentimes it's because there's been a lot of pain in their life and relationships. And so this woman has had pain beyond description. I cannot imagine what she was feeling in her heart. A revolving door of men who had disappointed her. Men who had broken her trust again and again and again. Men who wanted her for only what she could give. And when they didn't feel they were getting enough, they moved on to someone else. She undoubtedly had experienced some form of abuse in those relationships. And when relationships end and you begin another one and you have not dealt with the abuse, you carry that baggage right into the next relationship. And that's where she would have been. And so hence that relationship would fall apart as well. So this woman would have also had insecurity piled onto her disillusionment. Her whole identity was wrapped up in these relationships with other men. And I don't know if you've ever gone into a a fun house where they have mirrors that are shaped, oddly shaped, and you walk in and your body looks about this wide, or you look this tall, or you look really, really tall and about that thin. You know, you kind of laugh, your head might be that wide. And you kind of laugh because you know that is a distorted image of who you really are. But you know what? If you take those curved mirrors and you begin to put those on people, a husband, a spouse, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, and you begin to get your identity from those people by what they say, that curved mirror is going to give you a warped perspective of who you are. If we are drinking from the well of the world and the relationships of other people to identify who we are, we will have a warped perspective of who we are. We have to get our identity and our perspective from Jesus Christ, from the well, the living water. And Jesus has told us who we are. He's identified us. Our identification is really wrapped up in the book of Ephesians, which tells us who we are in Christ. 
that we are blessed, that we are saints, that we are saved through Jesus Christ. But whenever we begin to draw our identity from somebody else or some other relationship other than Jesus, we're going to be in trouble. She had to feel utterly hopeless. And I can only imagine that she probably had to hold grudges against people who had hurt her. You know, there's something special about holding on to a grudge. It has a good feel to it. I remember when I was a teenager... And uh, uh, when I uh, 15, 16, and I, I played baseball. And the one year I had to sit on the bench because the coach played all the older players. Next year he called me up and said, Roy, why don't you come out and play baseball? I said, no, probably not coming. <laughs> he called me again. Roy, I'd like you to come out. I could really use your arm. I'm thinking you couldn't use it last year. You're not getting it this year. <laughs> Great attitude, right, for a teenager? What was I doing? I was holding a grudge. Because it felt good. I'm like, man, that just felt kind of good. And we can do that. We can hold on to grudges because we feel good about it. But yet Jesus says we have to forgive and forget. And this woman probably had no idea what forgiveness was because she didn't even know who Jesus was. And maybe you're holding on to some kind of grudge, somebody who did something wrong to you, and you pile those grudges on, and it kills relationships. (laughs) It kills them. And Jesus is here to set us free. Jesus took the opportunity. Now we want to look at the solution here. Look down in verse 10 again. Actually, in verse 9, the woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, it even was a step further than that. Not only a Jew and a Samaritan and a man and a woman, but a rabbi and a woman. The men in that culture didn't even speak to their wives in public. Oftentimes, So for him to break that kind of barrier was incredible. So Jesus took this opportunity to close the gaps of which there were several. There was a gender gap, man and woman. There was a cultural gap, Jew, Samaritan. There was a moral gap, a rabbi and an immoral woman. There was a religious gap. She was sinful and he was sinless. They even worshipped in different places. But here's what I want us to recognize. First, Jesus is not intimidated by sin. Did you catch that? Because I think sometimes when we see somebody who is in a sinful lifestyle, we tend to draw back and are intimidated by their lifestyle, their sin, their vocabulary, their whatever, their appearance their behavior, and we draw back from them and we're intimidated by their sin rather than us being able to address them and build a bridge with them to share the gospel. I think this is vital. Jesus knew who she was. He knew everything about her, and yet he was not intimidated by her sin. He was willing to engage her in conversation. What an example for us. The second thing I want us to look at here is that living water comes from Jesus and not religion. So many people go to the well and they drink on all the rules and all the commandments and oh, if I do this and oh, if I do that and oh, if I. Jesus didn't say, here's what you need to do start obeying my commandments, start doing what I said, start doing, living by the 
rules and regulations I've set up. No, that's not what he said. He said, I have living water that will transform your life. And that's what is going to give you life. And what he was really telling her was, woman, you are dead. You are dead in sin. And the only thing that will revive you and bring you into a righteous life is this living water, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not following rules and regulations and commandments. and No, the living water. And the Bible says, notice what he says in verse 10, if you knew the what? Gift of God. And who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It is there, it's available, it's free. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. (laughs) It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So the living water is there. It is a gift. You cannot earn it by going to church or getting baptized or obeying the commandments. You don't earn a gift. It's free (laughs) for the taking. And that's what he was telling this woman. It's free for the taking. This living water is available to everyone. John 7, 37, on the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He goes on to say in Isaiah 55, 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. In John 7, 38, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He changes us from the inside out. And that's the difference between religion and a relationship. A relationship is from the inside out where God changes us. The Spirit of God is a living water that transforms a person from the inside out. Mankind has a spiritual thirst that can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. Let's look at the surprise. The surprise is the next thing. The woman is surprised in two ways. First, she believes there is an easier way to get water. She says, man, give me this water so I don't have to come out here with this pitcher in the heat of the day and I can just stay home and it just piped into my house. I never have to come back. She totally misunderstood. She was looking at a physical, horizontal level and totally missed that Jesus was talking about her spiritual thirst, which tells me something. A lot of people don't even know they're spiritually thirsty. Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about people you rub shoulders with in the marketplace. Maybe you even have family members who have no idea that today they are dying of spiritual thirst. And Jesus has to point it out to us that we are spiritually thirsty and we need him. The second thing that is amazing here is that Jesus knows everything about her. Look down in verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. 
What does that have to do with physical water? Nothing. He was turning to spiritual, her spiritual need, her spiritual deficit. The reason why she is thirsty and can't satisfy that thirst. And she says, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus knows everything about you and me. There is nothing hidden from him. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's revealing to himself. Early on in the story, he revealed his humanity. Remember, he sat down and the Bible says he was tired. And he was thirsty to show his humanity. I'm tired and thirsty and hungry. They went to get food, the disciples. He's showing his humanity. Now he is showing his divinity. I am God of very God. How could he have known that? The Bible says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows everything about us. It reminds me of the story of the little boy. He said to his grandfather one day, he said, Pa, does the Lord know everything? Yes, my son, replied the father. But why do you ask that question? Because, replied the boy, our preacher, when he prays, is so long telling him everything, I thought he wasn't posted. (laughs) A theological student came to Charles Spurgeon one day, and he was greatly concerned because he couldn't grasp the meaning of certain verses in the Bible. And the noted preacher replied kindly but firmly. He said, young man... Allow me to give you this word of advice. Give the Lord credit for knowing things you don't. He knows everything about every one of us. He knows about every heartache, every hurt, every hang-up, every fear, every feeling, every disappointment, every rejection. Every pang of loneliness. Now, who else knows that about you? Not even your spouse. They may know most of those, but they don't know them all. And Jesus is revealing himself to say, you know what? You have looked for spiritual thirst to be satisfied in this man, in this man, in this relationship, with this man. This is the man you need the relationship with. And what do people do? They go on the internet and they click for this picture and that picture and that idea and that thought. And we drink from the well of the world to satisfy, which will not satisfy. Only Jesus will satisfy. He knew about her spiritual need and he knows what we do not. Now, this woman, it does not tell us But there has to be one of two things true of her life. One, she was either totally ignorant about God's law and lived in ignorance and and spiritual blindness. She was blind no matter what. Or two, she was living and she knew God's law and she was living in rebellion. 
You see, that's really the only two things other than accepting Jesus Christ. If you are living in sin today, you are living in sin for one of two reasons. You are either totally ignorant of God's law and you've never understood God's law that you have violated him and are a sinner. We are born in sin. Or we have rejected God's law and we know what it says and we rebel against it willfully and do not accept it. Either one, you're lost. And I'm lost without Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we could be forgiven. Let's move on to the shame. The shame is number five. The woman thought that Jesus had no knowledge of her past. You see, there are teenagers today who hide things from their parents. And they think by hiding them from their parents or other people that they are okay. But you know what? God sees, the Bible says, in the dark and the light the same. (laughs) It doesn't matter. He sees it all the same. The darkness and the light, the Bible says, are both alike to God. And he sees it all. He sees it all. There's um, a story that a man by the name of Lafayette tells about being shut up in a little room in a gloomy prison for a great while. He said, in the door of this little cell was a very small hole that was cut. At that hole, there was a soldier placed day and night to watch him. All he could see was the soldier's eye, but that eye was always there. Day and night, every moment when he looked up, he always saw that eye. Oh, he said, it was dreadful. There was no escape, no hiding. When he lay down and when he rose up, that eye was watching him. How dreadful will the eye of God be, he said, upon the sinner. You see, we, we, we somehow rationalize the idea that I can hide from other people, but we cannot hide from God. The skeletons in your closet, God knows about every one of them. See, the truth of the matter is, God said you've had five husbands. If he wanted to, he could have named them all by name. He could have named exactly how long that relationship lasted and what caused it to break up. He knew everything about it. But he didn't. He doesn't even tell us the story or the name of the woman, I think, to protect her. The other thing that amazes me about what Jesus, how he responds to this woman is this. Jesus was able to suspend judgment on the woman in order to share the truth with her. How quick are we to cast judgment on a sinner rather than suspending the judgment that we might share the gospel of grace with them. We are so quick to say, oh, that person, we write him off. And Jesus did not write her off. He poured out his love and his grace to her in an incredible way. Someone once said that man's disappointments are often God's appointments. And the things we believe are tragedies may be the very opportunities through which God chooses to exhibit his love and his grace. 
And I think it's true. Stephen Charnock wrote a book on the nature of God. And in it, he observed that the fountain of evil practices is a denial or doubting of some of the rights of his nature. And when men deny the God of purity, he said they must needs be polluted in soul and body. And I like how John MacArthur said it. He said the godless philosophy of the world inescapably leads to moral perversion because of unbelief and immorality are inextricably intertwined. Unbelief and immorality are inextricably intertwined. When we embrace the godless philosophy of the world, it is for this reason that all believers should seek to have a deep and thorough knowledge of the attributes of God in our lives. John Wesley said, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Let's move on to the sermon. In verses 19 to 26, Jesus then launches into a sermon because she talked about worship and all that. And he said, the day is coming when it doesn't matter if it's Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. Worship, we worship God in spirit and truth. So there's two things I want to just say quickly here. First, the person we worship is more important than the place. Now, I think it is important that we have a place set aside in corporate worship because by and by, our world is fastly avoiding corporate worship because we've allowed sports and other things to creep in and the priority of worship has gone out the window. And I wish I had more time to talk about that. Maybe we will on another occasion. But the person we worship is more important than the place. But I do think the place is important, the corporate aspect. But Jesus was saying over all of that is the person. And secondly, that spirit and truth are essential for worship. We come to worship the God who is, not the God we want. And oftentimes we want to worship the God we want. The last thing I want to mention here is the significance. The woman's life was changed. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says, The Spirit and Bride say, Come, and let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And that's exactly what the woman got, was the water of life. Look down at verse 27. The disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with this woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Is not this the Christ she was saying? It was. Her life was radically changed because she believed in the living water. And secondly, the lives of others were changed. Look down at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more believed. 
They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's stand for a word of prayer. As you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I ask you a question. What well are you drinking from? Are you drinking from the well of the living water? The only one that will satisfy spiritual thirst. There is no satisfaction for spiritual thirst outside of Jesus Christ. You can't find it in religion. You can't find it in philosophy. You can't find it in education. You can't find it in the government. (laughs) You can't find it in the stock market. There's no other way you can find the ultimate satisfaction comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. Maybe you can identify with this woman this morning because you've been through some hurts. You've been through some heartaches. You avoid relationships. Maybe you're experiencing the pang of loneliness. I don't know what it is. Maybe you have faced incredible rejection in your life. I want to encourage you, though. Come to the living water. Receive the life that God has for you in the person of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers, that we need to not be intimidated by sin. We need to suspend judgment so that we might share the message of truth with people and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. If you have questions or need someone to pray with, I'll be shaking hands at the back. Please see myself or somebody else. We're here to meet your spiritual need this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to be in your house this morning. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word, the living water that changes lives. Lord, I thank you that You died that we might have a relationship with you. We thank you for how you suspended judgment so that you might meet the need of this woman who had many needs in her life. And how you were not intimidated by sin. God, you took a stand. You spoke the truth in love. Help us to do that as well in our lives. Lord, if there's someone here today who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, while they may look good on the outside, God, inside, they're dying. They're dead, apart from you. And you can bring spiritual life to them, and you want to give them that satisfaction of living water. I pray that they will come to the cross and embrace you. Lord, we, we thank you for always being there for us, that we can bring every need, every burden, every problem to you. Lord, we love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check out our website at www.bchweb.org or on our Facebook page, Bethesda Church of Huron.